They're sending you a message. You need us more than we need you. I don't think healthcare should be like that. Why can healthcare get away with that? You need to acquire skills to become, you know, a leader because you're either going to learn it uh, the hard way or you're going to learn it the easy way. People get promoted to their level of incompetence. I think, you know, when you're around someone who knows more than you, uh, to just shut up. Never be the smartest guy in every room. Just shut up and listen. We don't do HIV testing in nuns. Welcome to Lead On Purpose. I'm James Lachlan, former seven-time world champion musician and now executive coach to global leaders and high performers. In every episode, I bring you an inspiring leader or expert to help you lead your life and business on purpose. Thanks for taking the time to connect today and investing in yourself. Enjoy the show. I'm incredibly excited to welcome in this week's special guest, Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. He brings in over 20 years of clinical, administrative, and entrepreneurial experience to the show. He has been a triple board certified physician with specialties in internal medicine, pulmonary, and critical care medicine. He was the former medical director of the Valley Health Systems, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Culinary Health Fund. Currently, Dr. Bakhtari is the CEO of eNational Testing, E7 Health, and U.S drug test centers. He's been featured on everything you could imagine from Forbes to Daily Mail, Washington Post, Voice of America, Martha Stewart, the lot. And we're so very fortunate to bring him in today to talk about leadership, to talk about responding in times of crisis. So sit back and enjoy the show. Dr. Jonathan, a huge welcome to the Lead on Purpose podcast. Oh, what an honor. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, thanks, James. Oh, so, so great to connect. And look, we've got so many things that we want to jump into today. You've, you're incredible. When, it looks, when I look at what you've done with building culture, building teams, innovating, it's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But to get Thank started, you. I think one of the very fascinating things is the whole uh, idea around COVID and the preparedness almost uh, being ahead of the curve for that. So can we rewind a little bit and look sure. at the company you founded and why you founded it, what you were thinking for the future, and then let's talk about how that unfolded. Yeah, it was really interesting. Back in 2009, we began our company, which is E7 Health, but back then we actually called it the Vaccine Center. And part of the thing was that um, we understood, even based on CDC statistics, there were at least 50,000 50, vaccine pre- preventable deaths in the United States annually uh, in adults. And, you know, that just seemed crushing, you know, just like that's how many people died in the Vietnam War. And that's happening annually. And, you know, when it came to adult vaccination, everybody was doing it as a side hustle. You know, just uh, you know, at a pharmacy or whatever, but nobody was doing it as their main focus. And so we thought, well, why don't we just build a company that's focused on adult vaccinations, whether it's for travel, employer health, or student health, or whatever, 
books of business that adult vaccinations were involved. Why don't we do that and then just try to make a dent in it? And so we did that. And we eventually changed our name to E7 Health back in 2017, mainly because people thought that's all we did was adult vaccinations. But we wound up doing everything around the vaccinations, like physicals and blood work that they people would need. And so we became E7 Health. So when COVID hit, we were already testing for chickenpox virus and herpes virus. And we were doing a measles, mumps, and rubella. You could come in and get a test, blood test for all those viruses. And so we were already doing that, and all, and we'd written, we'd become a technology company, written our own platform, our own software to do all of that. So when COVID hit, we were one of the first companies to roll out nationwide here in the United States, nationwide uh, drug testing where you could order a kit um, and you get it home, spit in a tube, send it back to us, and go on on your portal and get the results. And we did it for employers too who want to test their employees before they came back to work or what have you. So. Uh, while a lot of people had to pivot and become a COVID company, you know, we were actually doing it. So it was interesting because now people get the value of how adult vaccinations can save lives. Uh, but we had already, tr- that was our motto to intervene and save lives by focusing on adult vaccination. So that's a long-winded intro into how we kind of evolved and got got into COVID testing and COVID management. Thank you for sharing that. And just for the listener that's listening and they're, they're not watching the video version of this, they won't see the incredible collection of books that you have. In the <laughs> You're a well-read human. So what is your background? What did you specialize in before you you founded E7 Health? Yeah, you know, I went, so I went to, you know, medical school, you know, I went to Ohio State University for medical school. Then I went to Northwestern University for my residency and UCLA for my fellowship and I uh, became board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary and critical care. I actually you know, practiced for uh, 10 years plus, uh, seeing patients all day long and uh, managing patients in the ICU and seeing patients in the office, which is probably the greatest part of my life. I really enjoyed all of that. But slowly I got introduced into administrative medicine and had some opportunities to be on committees and what have you. And then one thing led to another and I became medical director of insurance companies and hospitals. And that experience, uh, you know, was really eye-opening. And then, you know, I also became clinical professor in like three medical schools over my career. And that was pretty eye-opening to and fun to teach young budding healthcare professionals. Um, and then, you know, I think I took all of that experience of practicing medicine, working for insurance companies, working for the hospital, teaching young healthcare uh up and coming healthcare providers. And, you know, that unique background allowed me to kind of view problems in a different way, I think. And in a sense, like, you know, how can we make a dent in healthcare? In addition to seeing patients one on one, was there some bigger way we can make a dent in healthcare? And so um, we just came up with this idea of making a dent in preventative health and wellness. Uh, focusing on, on adult vaccinations and then building technology to address that. And that's what we've done. We really, I often joke, we're a technology company masquerading as a healthcare company, <laughs> but it's true. We we literally don't, for the most part, don't use any third-party software where everything's in-house. We have our own development team. And that's, and the goal of that was to reduce friction for the patients. So 
you know, we have literally five-star reviews on Google everywhere you look, mainly because we have, you know, we've made it like going to Amazon and ordering something. No friction, you know, just a couple of clicks, you get what you want and boom, you're done. See, that to me is what every user wants. It's the ease of use that makes it engaging and exciting. So what was your thinking behind how do we make this Amazon-esque? How, how did you start to actually frame that up for you and your team? Well, we looked at why healthcare technology was not, I like that word, Amazon-esque. And we, I, it became so clear to me why it's not. It's not like Amazon has better developers than the healthcare industry, right? They're not, the, Amazon's not any smarter, right? It can, can't be. You know, I mean, people in healthcare are pretty smart too, right? They're not idiots. Why can't, why can't they do that, right? But then I became clear to me why they can't. They can't do it because when they're writing software, they have five masters to answer to. Okay, if I ask you to write software, but not between, you know, mano mano, just two people, uh, or women to women, I should say. Yeah. But, you know, when you're writing software and you got to take care of the government side of it, what they what they want, the, you know, the HMO, the insurance, the pharmacy, you, you, the patient, that software is not going to be very brilliant and, and, and frictionless, right? Because everyone has a vested interest in what they think is important. The insurance company, uh, I don't know where you are, if there's a lot of government-run programs, you know, they have a vested interest in, in what the information they need and want and the boxes they need check. And so you can't really write software to make eight people happy. You know, I, I've given this analogy on many, many shows, but it's literally like going on a date to a fancy restaurant and sitting down and having the chef and waiter join you for dinner. You're, you're not going to have a natural conversation. <laughs> so we cannot be Amazon-esque because Amazon is a transaction between only two people. Now, if if the if you had to get three other people to sign off on your Amazon purchases, would it be that frictionless to order something on Amazon? You probably wouldn't order anything in the end, <laughs> right? Right, right. So I think I think so. That's what we decide to do. We just said, you know, let's just get rid of everybody except the patient and and the provider. Incredible. And then then writing software is a breeze. Because all you're focusing on is how do you make the, the patient or client's life easy? Mm -hmm. yeah, how, how do you make it that they can get what they want, when they want it? And, and you know, like we're one of the, I think we're the only clinic and in, in maybe in the world that doesn't have a medical records department. Because er, everything we do is on your portal. Like if you wanted to know what you ordered on Amazon a year ago, would you call up Amazon? Would you say, hey, what did I order? No, you would just go to Amazon and you just... Look up what you ordered. Why would you ever call a clinic and say, can I have my records? You you own your records. They're yours. You, they belong to you. You you paid for it. So even that. Um, so, and, and really, the, you know, what we try to do is if you want to book an appointment, you can just sit in your car, go into our app while you're parked in front of our, you know, stores and just book the appointment and walk right in. I mean, no going through an entire phone system and press one, press four, press six, plus press two. We'll call you back in 24 hours. <laughs> None of that. 
As you might be aware, recently we made the decision to remove all adverts and promotions from the podcast. Why? Well, your listening experience is my priority. So we decided to remove them all and in return, I've got a very small favor to ask of you. If you enjoy the podcast and the incredible guests that we bring on, can you please follow and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Please also leave me a rating and review. The reason this is so important is the more ratings, reviews, and followers I get, the more the show is promoted to other incredible people like you who really get lots of value from the show. So please do that. And also, massive ask, please share this with three other people in your life. Share the show with them directly. Copy and paste the link. Tell them you've got to listen to Lead on Purpose. I hope that it impacts their lives and it really helps me to grow the show. So I really appreciate it. And let's get back to the show. See, that's incredible. As as a patient, I've had a couple of experiences where ringing to make an appointment, sometimes it's taken me three hours to connect with the receptionist. Right. And then it's taken two more days to figure out a time that suits for everyone. So that system would have solved for that problem. The other issue was about 10 years ago, I said, hey, I'd like to see my records. I'd like to know how many times in my life yes. I've had antibiotics. How many times right. have I had? And so yeah. they literally had to print out my whole patient file. It was maybe 55 pages. of, uh-huh. different, And it was just I had to comb through it. Something like what you're saying would have just been instant. I could check it out right away. I probably could search for antibiotics mm-hmm. to see how many courses I've had. Like, wow, mm-hmm. from a patient standpoint, count me in. Yeah. And what's interesting is, Healthcare thinks they have electronic health records. It's not so electronic if they give you a clipboard when you walk into the office. I mean, how electronic can you be if I'm walking into the waiting room, you're handing me a clipboard? That's not that's not electronic. That's whatever it is. But so yes, I, I think this the 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 pain points in healthcare is all those things because you're more likely to order something on Amazon than another website where you have to fill out five forms, put your address three more times and fill out your credit card information again. And, you know, the reason why Amazon became a success is they're like, no, no, we don't, we don't need your address anymore. We got your credit card. You know, we, we don't need any additional information. Click, click. And it's on your doorstep the next day. That's why they were successful. And other companies who just made you fill out a thousand forms, like, well, I wonder why we can't compete with Amazon. Yeah. Well, because you, you're making people fill out all this stuff. And as sooner or later, they figure out, even if I had to pay a couple more shekels or a little, if you, you know, I'd rather just knock it out. But um, yeah, so that's that's how business works. And But see, when you call and it takes three hours to get through what is that provider telling you? Who Who's holding all the cards, you or them? Yeah, it makes you it, feel like you're not valued, right? Well, let me ask you a question. You have clients, people call you that want your services. If it took three hours to get a hold of you, how many clients would you have? I'd have none very quickly. Right? Let's say I, let's say I really need your services. And I call you and it says, if you're a new client, press one. If you're an old client, press two. If this is a billing issue, press three. If you need medical records, press one. If I if you put every new client through that, and then at the end of all that, say, but I'm busy right now. I'll call you back in 48 hours. <laughs> How many new clients would you get? Oh, none, and they would run to the opposition in a heartbeat. 
But what? But why can healthcare get away with that? See, I'm mm. now I'm interviewing you. What? What? Why? What is it that? Unless they have, you know, because they have a monopoly, they've, you know, they have you cornered. But they're not at. So when they do that, by definition, they're sending you a message: you need us more than we need you. Mm-hmm. And the, I don't think healthcare should be like that. That's a paradigm shift. And it's interesting. I've felt at times, oh, I should change my um, GP. It's not convenient anymore. We've moved locations. There's a longer drive to get there. But then I thought, oh, I'm not sure if I'll get in somewhere else. I'm not sure if they're taking new patients. So all of a sudden, I really need my GP more than they need me. You've, you've coined it perfectly. Right. and But then they become cognizant on that and set up their system to take advantage of that. Now, yeah. I'm not talking about your GP in general, but often. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Now, I'd like to ask you, you've had to be very focused on future thinking, problem solving, uh, being able to innovate. But all the while you've been doing that, you've also been building team, you've been leading leaders, developing a high performance culture. As a CEO and a founder, how do you make the space to ensure that you're looking at all the important ingredients that keep your ship moving forward? Well, you know, um, I think I told you before the show, you know, I, I'm actually doing a podcast season on, on on a crash course for CEOs. And one of the things I one of the earlier episodes I talk about that is, you know, people think being a leader is a soft skill. Like I'm oh, I'm a nice guy, people like me, you know, uh, I'm easy to get along with. So I'll be a great CEO. Nothing could be further than the truth. I mean. You wouldn't say that about landing a 747, right? You wouldn't say, I'm a nice guy. I'm easy to get along with. So I'll, I can land a 747 from 30,000 feet. You could be as nice as you want. People could love you. You're not landing that plane. You're just not. <laughs> There's only going to be one ending to that if you're trying to land a 747, right? 100%. Or, right? Or if I put you in a room with a piano, just because you're a nice guy and people like you, doesn't mean you're going to learn to play that piano without lessons, right? So I think people don't view leadership and technical skills, uh, view leadership as technical skills or things that they need to acquire, just like you would have to take flight lessons to land the 747. You'd have to take piano lessons to play the piano. You need to acquire skills to become, you know, a leader, whether CEO or in any sort, because you're either going to learn it uh, the hard way or you're going to learn it the easy way. The hard way is to make the mistakes, lose people, you know, turn people off or, you know, n- not get buy-in from your staff. And and then you're like, okay, well, don't do that again. But you don't want to learn that and you're dying, right? I mean, this is why the best CEOs are the ones that kind of grew up in an organization. But a lot of CEOs just become CEOs because it was their idea. Like, you know, I just came up, but that doesn't necessarily make you a good leader because you came up with the idea or you put in the initial money. So what? Because that doesn't necessarily make you qualified. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this thing called the Peter Principle, which is that, you know, people get promoted to their, uh, I don't exact phrase, but people get promoted to their level of incompetence. Yeah. You know, like it, just because you're a good engineer doesn't mean you would be good as the head of the engineering department, right? And people say, well, he's a good engineer. So he would be a great head of the engineering department. You know, he's a good accountant. So he would be great at being the head of the accounting department. 
Now you could be, but you need to acquire some skills. And I think this this is the trade-off where people say, well, you know, it was my idea. I put the money in. So obviously I'd be the best person to lead it. Now that sounds depressing, but if you then say, okay, now how do I acquire those skills? Who do I need to? Are there mentors, people I can look to who can advise me, walk me through it, hold my hands? Uh, but if you don't, if you if you view leadership as soft skills, you'll never look for that or ask for help. And what about your journey? So where did you develop your leadership skills? Okay. And full disclosure, be totally honest, Samu was from the school of hard knocks, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Samu was like, okay, I was a doctor. I'm like, but the you know, like, okay, I'm a doctor, I'm a smart guy, I think I'm not stupid. I mean, you know, whatever. But but luckily, I just stumbled onto a couple of people who just held my hand. And I, I it was serendipity. I, I didn't even like necessarily know it at that. But I just luckily stumbled onto some people who were my friends, but also were leaders in, in their companies and their field. And, uh, you know, I'd be hanging out with them and saying, oh, I'm thinking about doing this. And they were just like, no, 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 no. And and um, I think I think you know if there's one trait that I think served me well is um, I think you know when you're around someone who knows more than you uh, to just shut up you know that's just shut up you know just I always give the analogy if uh, you meet Michael Jordan and he's teaching you how to shoot a basketball you got nothing to say (laughs) (laughs) you just need to just completely shut up. Okay, if you're talking to LeBron James and he tells you, "Hey, this is how you dribble the ball," you got nothing to add. I mean, if if you believe you're you know next to LeBron James, I mean, you know. But so here's what: when you identify these mentors, just shut up. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, don't tell them how how what you think is should be done a little bit differently. Now, as you gain experience, whatever you can maybe somewhere down the line, add your own color and texture to it. But for the first part, just you know, just never, never be the smartest guy in every room. Never, you know, never feel. And I think you know, oh, I'm the CEO, ba 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 ba. I'm the smartest guy in this room. No, you're not. And even your staff, you know, they have so much to teach you. You know, you're not the IT guy. You are not the software developer. You may, you may be the big vision guy. But you, you're you're not the social media director. You're you may think you know everything about social media, but you know just shut up and listen. Now, this is a two-edged coin. At some point, yes, obviously you are the big vision guy, and you may have to direct those people in the right way. But at least try to listen, try to be open, try to take it in, process it, get information from multiple sources. Yes, at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. So yes. So how do you combine where the buck stops with me? But I have to take in so much data that when I do finally make a decision, I think it's the best possible decision with the data I had available. Yes, you make sure that you're informed with all of the key points that allow you to make the best decision for the company. Right. So I think, yeah. So I don't know if that makes sense as I'm blabbing about. That's great. It really is. And you talked about failure. I want to just go there for a moment. So COVID presented opportunities for everyone. Some were really negative. Some were positive. Some people came out the other end and it was a huge success. 
other people and sometimes countries uh, came out and it was a major failure how they responded to COVID. So what do you feel we've learned from COVID that can help us when the next pandemic comes? Because it's a matter of time. It's, it, it will happen eventually. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. have we learned as a race, as people? Or what have you learned as a leader that you think can prepare us better for the next time? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, we can go back and say, you know, what was done wrong. But, uh, you know, even on my podcast during COVID, we were talking about it. You know, I don't know if all of these lockdowns were as necessary as possible. Because on one hand, you know, we knew that the people most vulnerable and the, you know, the elderly people with multiple risk factors were the ones that needed to be protected. I mean, someone could make the argument that the only lockdown that should have happened is within that group. You know, if we lock down theoretically everybody, you know, above 60, 65, uh, now when I say lockdown, I mean, just give them the help and protection they need, you know, maybe compensate them for missing work, keep their jobs, uh, especially older people with multiple risk factors. Um, and then, yeah, obviously some precautions, you know, in terms of work environment and stuff. I don't know with hindsight if we really needed to kind of have the draconian lockdowns where it, it totally decimated the economies. Um, you know, um, and, you know, if 50,000 people in the United States die from vaccine-related deaths annually, it's not like, you know, it's got to be zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, nobody's saying, oh, I mean, we, we have, you know, tens of thousands of people dying of the flu in worldwide, you know, in the United States and worldwide, but we don't shut down the economy because of that, right? I mean, so it's all a matter of, you know, keeping it in perspective, you know, people die from malaria, there's a lot of contagious diseases around the world that people die from. Um, and so in retrospect, I think we, we learned that. But the good news, I mean, just I don't want to be a downer. I want to give some good news. The good news is the mRNA technology that came out of it. That mRNA technology for, you know, I don't want to get a technical, that's not a, a science-based podcast, but that mRNA technology, I I suspect would have never gone off the shelf were it not for a crisis because it would have been very socially unacceptable to convince people to inject, you know, foreign chromosomes into your biceps or, or deltoid uh, as a guise to creating a vaccine. I think I think there would have been a psychological hurdle that would have kept it potentially on the shelf. And now, now that the cat's out of the bag and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that that technology can be used and it already is in trials, you know, for many other things, including, you know, hopefully malaria, HIV, anti-cancer vaccines. Uh, wouldn't it be funny in 50 years if we said, yes, you know what, that MRI, that COVID pandemic killed millions of people, but the technology that came out of it saved 50 million people. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be, let's say, you know, we could go in a time machine in 50 years from now and, and say, oh, we, we saved 100 million people from cancer and from other diseases because of the samurai technology. Uh, obviously, the you know people we lost is is decimating and and just painful. Uh, but if some good could come out of it, that would be huge. 
Oh, massive. And I always think problems present possibilities. And to me, that's a, like a choice as a leader. You can see these problems as possibilities or mm. you can see it as disaster. And clearly you looked mm. at it as an opportunity for your company to help others. Yeah, it was really, and, and we're really thankful that we could make a dent in people getting tested when they needed it and, and protecting employers and protecting other employees and, and people at home who didn't know if it was safe for them to go out and seek medical attention. So I'm, I'm really proud of our organization. You should be. And in terms mm-hmm. of the, the nature of work, the, I feel like when I get on planes or when I'm in close proximity in a large venues with concerts and whatnot, people are still a little bit weird and awkward and keep your distance. If someone sneezes, mm-hmm. everyone looks. So mm-hmm. how do you feel about the nature of what's happening in the professional sense in terms of corporate spaces, people getting back to work or people working from home? What do you mm-hmm. think we need to be doing moving into the future? Do we need to be all working from home and doing that thing? Or do we need to get back and, and forming those communities and cultures? Well, let me answer it from a business point of view and then from a medical point of view. So uh, even during COVID, I, I actually felt that this working from home was not was really not a starter, not for for many reasons. And I'm not talking about now even medical. First of all, 60 percent of people cannot work from home. If you're driving a, a truck, if you're a waitress at a diner, you can't do that. at home. If you're constructing, you're building houses. You're not going to be able to do that if you're working retail. So this whole, you know, I actually said it on a podcast back during COVID. It's like glamorizes. Oh, we have a society where everybody works. It can't. It's just 60% of people can't work from home. I mean, you can't, you know, build a house working from home. You can't, yeah, you can't make a, you know, a steak for someone at a restaurant working from home. So, you know, you can't deliver an Amazon package working from home. So this is, it's like this romantic thing that people are going to be working from home. You can't. Yeah, sixty percent. Okay, and then the forty percent that potentially could, when the rubber meets the road, you know, if you send a hundred people to work from home, are are some of them going to be equally as productive as when they were working? Maybe a handful, but you know, come on, it just it, it isn't. Yes, I know people who work from home and are even more productive, but take a hundred people, do that to. And you will have a lot of people for, and not even in a bad sort of way, the way they mean it, but, you know, okay, the dog, you know, this, that, I, you know, you even see stuff on the internet with people getting a second job and blah, blah, blah. So, and then lastly is this building of culture and innovation. I can't tell you how much innovation we've stumbled onto because, you know, four of us are in a meeting and we're you know, blabbing about something and somebody says, hey, have we ever thought of, and then somebody builds on that. And, you know, you, you can't just throw all, all that culture collaboration out the window and expect your company to, you know, have everyone working from home and, and still have some of that. Yeah, okay, Zoom, whatever. But so I, I just think that, I, yes, there are certain positions where, you know, you're just a bookkeeper and it doesn't really matter where you do it. I get it. But romanticizing that there'll be a whole industry of people working from home, I think um, I, I said it then, and I said it now, it's, it's not practical. And it's interesting because I think my position was was borne out because you, every day, you know, all these tech companies are saying, no, 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 you got to come back, you got to come back. There's a reason for that. You know, I, I remember just vacationing in Hawaii and I met a realtor and they're like, oh, we're selling houses 
to people from Microsoft and, you know, like they're all moving here. I'm like, really? You know, what's going to happen when they have to, in a year or two, when they are told they all have to go back, uh, you know, but so, yeah, I, I don't, I think it's a little overblown. And what about from the medical standpoint? Yeah, I mean, look, from a medical standpoint, there are things we can do. So I, I totally kind of get this. For example, you, you brought up the office. You know, one of the problems with offices is we spent the last 20, 30 years making buildings energy efficient, right? That's the whole thing. We're going to make this energy efficient. You know, we're not going to have any air coming in and out so we don't waste air conditioning or heat, right? Well, that's exactly the opposite of what you want to do if you want to, you know, make it more conducive to not spread things. So I think, I think there is a pulling and tugging on that because if you build these buildings that are super energy efficient, what by definition, what does that mean? That that we're not going to be circulating air around and letting air go out or air come in. Da, 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 da. So yes, so I think I think to your point, yes, I think. Someone's going to have to revisit that and and come up with a solution. I'm not a, I don't know what that field is where they look at, you know, uh, building designs with energy efficiency versus air circulation. But whatever that field is, I think they're going to have to go back to the drawing board and come up with something that takes both into account. Mm, absolutely. And with your experience leading companies at the forefront, what role has AI played in recent years? You know, Jerusalem, we're just rolling that out, and and part of uh, what we're rolling it out is really uh, in our ability to take in new clients and customers, and 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 because uh, you know a lot of what we do is B two B. You know, we have a lot of business relationships and what their needs are. So, to, frankly, we've just rolled that out and 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 addressing some of requests and concerns that our clients have. And we're looking to do more because we are a technology company. So we're we're uh, and we so, certainly have added it to our social media campaign, uh, and we're we're literally investing heavily into it. So I think the full picture will be more clear probably in the next year or two for us. Brilliant, and then going down to a more personal standpoint here as well. So uh, let's say I'm a listener right now. I'm thinking, you know, my personal health is important as a leader. Obviously, there's lots of stresses and strains on leaders. It can play havoc on our autoimmune system long term. From your experience as a physician, what can we be, or not what can we, what should we be doing to really make Mm -hmm. sure that we look after our short and long-term health? Yeah, obviously, well, look, there's no substitute from seeing your doctor. So the, let's just get that out. You got to you gotta see your doctor regularly. Uh, we just launched a website called enationaltesting.com. That's just enationaltesting.com, where, uh, again, I know you're not in the United States, but in the United States, in all 50 states, we have a, you know, a lab within probably half a mile to a mile of most listeners. Now, all they could do is like Amazon, you can order men's panel, prostate, cholesterol, literally three clicks. And you get a requisition, no appointment. You walk in, get it. Results come back to your portal. It's easy as pie. So if you're thinking about taking your health, see your doctor. Uh, if you want to test uh, test your cholesterol, your glucose, your sugar, a men's health package, food allergies, women's health package. I mean, we have it all online and we try to make it very affordable, super affordable and easy to access. 
So it's, it's literally, I'm going to have to use, start using your word, Amazon-esque, uh, where you can actually get whatever you need there. See your doctor regularly. Remember, you own your health, nobody else. It's, uh, nobody else is going to look out for it like you do. So that's what we were trying to do with enationaltesting.com, make that available in all 50 states, easy to get to. That's phenomenal. And in terms of being really preventative, from your, again, your personal experience as a physician, but also uh, as a leader, what are the common mm. things, the non-negotiables that we should be doing to maintain our health apart from going to see a doctor? What can we be eating or moving? Oh, no. I mean, look, just broad strokes, exercise, okay, nutrition and stress. I mean, you 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 put those three together and that's everything. Okay. So besides seeing your doctor or whatever, you know. Yeah, aerobic exercise, strength training exercise, great nutrition, which really means protein, vegetables, and not too much processed carb, but just some carbs. Uh, and, um, you know, three, four meals a day, no skipping meals, cardio exercise, strength training, uh, getting your vaccine, your adult vaccinations. You know, most people don't, don't know they need a tetanus shot every five to 10 years, annual flu shot, annual, uh, well, uh, pneumonia shot, depending on your how old you are, how often. So getting your pneumonia shot, your flu shot, your COVID shot, getting your tetanus shot. If you're traveling to developing nations, go see a travel medicine expert and get other appropriate shots and consultations and medications. So these are all things you can do if you want to own your health. Amazing. And for the person that, that heard the word stress there, what do you recommend in terms, obviously the exercise will help and so will good mm-hmm. nutrition in, in reducing stress. What other things would you recommend to manage the stress? Yeah, so so obviously try not to put too much on your plate. You know, people are like, oh, I'll take three more jobs, what have you. But really stress, I mean, if you're doing yoga, prayer, uh, meditation, any of those are really great, great, um, you know, starters and then just understanding you know that you, there's a limit to what you want to take on you got to have times where you're off you know where you where you're you're literally uh you know one day a week i turn everything off no email no nothing and uh, no cell phone boom just i'm off and that's just my way of dealing with it but you know there are other ways of doing it uh you know go to the gym you know two three times a week uh and yeah either pray or meditate all you're doing all that plus you're eating right um i think you're on the right right road that's brilliant really really good feedback i think anyone could uh, adopt any of those in quite a simple and sustainable way right yeah it's consistency yeah takes you know at least three to four months to make something a habit so you got to keep going through that initial period 100 percent. and look obviously we don't have exact models right now but the chances of a pandemic coming back are there mm-hmm. what will you do differently for yourself for your company for the people around you what will you do differently this time around well i i think it's really important to, again to hint back to what i said earlier identify who's really vulnerable and focus on that mm-hmm. this idea that just focusing on everybody i mean we don't do that with other things we know we don't do diabetes screening in 10 year olds right could happen 10 year olds can get diabetes but we, we base it on statistics, right? We don't do osteoporosis check on 30-year-olds, right? We could. I mean, they're rare 30-year-old that might have bone density issues. So in everything in medicine, we tailor make our focus and our attention, 
right? You know, we don't do HIV testing in nuns, you know, because it's not good. I mean, and I use that analogy because it's all thing. But I mean, you you have to do what's appropriate in the group that you think is at risk. And and every part of medicine, that's what I've done my whole career. That's what I've been taught to do. You know, you don't order a prostate, you know, ex, uh, test on a 30-year-old or 25-year-old. Why? Well, it's possible, but we're not here to do anything that's possible. We're here to do what statistically is likely or more likely. And I think that's the lesson of this pandemic. Do things like we do in it. I don't know why that rule fell out the window during this pandemic, but that's how we do everything else. If you're 30 years old and you go to your doctor and say, I want a cardiac stress test, he's going to laugh at you. Like, no, you're not getting one. You're 30 years old. But because he's saying that chances are so minimal, why would we do it? It could be, but but it's not likely, right? So we have to do handle pandemics like we handle everything else in medicine. And why do you Which think, because globally, I think collectively, most countries did not handle that the way you're suggesting. I think it would have been brilliant, but why did we not? Well, now you were kind of speculating into the area of politics and stuff, but I think one, one, I think maybe the data wasn't as clear, so we could maybe excuse it earlier on. But I think it just developed into this sort of uh, political thing where, um, you know, it, it, for for people in position of power, it also allowed, you know, just the ability to, you know, put into programs that they've wanted to have anyway into a impact. And, you know, again, I try not to get too political, but, it, you know, when, when there's an emergency, you know, you can do a lot of things that you might not be able to do. Otherwise, get a lot of things done. You know, push through that you might and and but in all fairness part of it we didn't know but even when we found out i i just i thought we hung up we like got her in the united states we school closed schools forever now i get closing schools in terms of protecting teachers but i don't think the kids were much risk uh you know we, maybe we could have protected the older teachers or the teachers with risk factors um but you know i think a lot of it has to do with just the political will. And um, I know certain countries like Australia, New Zealand, really clamped down hard. And, uh, you know, and maybe in retrospect, you know, they 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 may have wanted to rethink that. Yeah, they were very, from a New Zealand perspective, the leader and leaders were very much celebrated in the early days um, mm-hmm. of thank you for saving our nation. And then where the, it turned, it turned 180. And it was oh, like, really? Yeah, you've destroyed our economy. You're telling us how to live. Like there was a big rhetoric shift. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a big risk there for politicians um, when they're having to lead the charge. Yeah, yeah. I think um, there's a lesson to be learned there too, right? Definitely, hundred percent. And in terms of you know your own leadership, um, or in terms of a culture perspective, so how do you get people on the bus with in your company? How do people buy into the purpose of who mm-hmm. you are and what you do? Well, again, this is goes back to the skill sets. You this you have to actually learn. You, you know, it's like playing a piano. You can't just learn it from being in a room with the piano, right? That's <laughs> I, you know, lock me in a room with the piano for seven days. I promise you, I will not be able to play the piano. 
so uh, it's you have to acquire these skills. And I think part of it is it's multifaceted. One, you have to lead by example. Like if you are not, if you yourself aren't totally bought in, if you really have a plan B, if this doesn't work, they're going to figure that out. If you're if you're not always on, you're not answering your emails at seven o'clock at night when something when something hits the fan. Uh, they're not going to be on at seven o'clock at night when something hits the fan. If uh, you know, you can lead by example. If you're not answering the phone, you're not taking the garbage out, especially in the early days. Uh, you know, like, so yeah, if you're just the so this whole idea, how do you convey that you're in it to win it and you don't have a plan B and it's you know, this has got to work because we don't have a plan B. Uh, and if you always have, and then, so that's sort of by example, but then you just have to really enroll people into your vision and, you know, not everybody wants to be enrolled into vision. Some people want a job from nine to five clock in and out and get their paycheck that, you know, especially early on when you're, when you have minimal staff that could break you if you had a bunch of people clocking in and out. You know, this is not the post office, right? Where you can just clock in and out, get a paycheck. We're here to light the place on fire. We're here to, you know, create something special. And you have to see if you caught the person in the right time in their lives that where they want to do something like that. I got to be frank with you. There are times in my life when I was younger, I didn't want to light the place on fire. I just wanted a job. Am I a bad person? No. But I, I you know, I had something going on, you know, my family, blah, blah, blah. I was in a, I had this hobby, you know, whatever. I, I just needed something. Yeah, I'm going to do a great job. I'm going to show up. I'm going to kill it. But, you know, I'm not thinking about it on the drive home to, from work. Right. And that's okay. But, you know, but if I'm doing a startup and my first five people are going to determine whether we succeed or not, that is not going to work. Not going to work for your company, not going to work for you. So I think the question is, you know, yes, if you if you have 999 accountants and you're tr- interviewing for your 1,000th accountant, who cares if they're bought in? But if you're hiring your first accountant, yeah, you better care if they're bought in because that will make or break you. So it depends where you are in the growth phase. So again, if you're hiring the 10th, person in the, your finance department, I think, you know, you, you're, how critical you are of that person's enrollment is different than if they're, they are that department, right? And so you have to understand that, that you have to hire and interview differently when you're bringing on people as your main stakeholders versus somebody who is just going to be literally just knocking out a job. But even that, I find the great companies, even when you're the 20th accountant in the finance department, you get a winner there, um, whatever. So I always say, you know, and I when I'm interviewing and I give this example, I say, well, listen, you know, if you got a job at, uh, what's a good, I mean, we have Macy's here. What, what's the department store where you're at? I don't It'll know. But farmers, what, yeah. what, what farmers. is it? Farmers. So if you got a job at Farmers, and you do a great job, you work 18 hours a day, you're not going to ch- change their stock price, right? But if you come to my company and kill yourself, you could be the difference between our revenues going up 20% or 40%, right? One person, in, so you have, to, you have to tell the person in our organization, 
you can make a difference. If you're the 1,000th nurse at a hospital, you're not going to change that hospital's bottom line, right? I mean, of course, you want to do a great job. But here with our organization, you have an opportunity to come in and, and light the place on fire. And believe me, if that happens, we're going to take care of you. So that's sort of the the deal. Yeah, and you get that buy-in and that cultural buy-in. They can see their place and their area of responsibility, their value add. Right. The question was really, why should someone do that? And you, Then you have to hold up your side of the bargain. Mm-hmm. If they come and kill it, you got to take care of them. 100%. 100%. And in terms of your own continuous growth and development, you know, you're, you've grown a number of companies, you've built teams. What do you do to keep on the tip of your own leadership lid and lifting that lid? Well, you know, if you do a great job, you need to have, because, you know, there's not enough of you to go around. Okay, there's just not. So you have to heavily, heavily invest time, energy in the core leaders that are going to be below you. Because you, unless you're planning on cloning yourself, you can't meet with every new hire and you can't mentor every new hire. There's a great book I read called Tribal Leadership. And, you know, in that book, what they talk about is it's not good. It's not how good you are. It's, you got to be good, but it's good is um, how good can you make others, right? Let's say you're killing it and you're, you know, putting in you know, so much value and what you do, but can't, if you could create three more people like you, you'd be helping the company more because at the end of the day, there's only so much you can give. Even if you work 24 hours a day, that's your limit. But if you can create, you know, if you're, na- you know, if you're Jane and you're, you're like killing in the company, but create four more Janes for me. And now we're talking. Right. How do you go and- about creating more of you? Well, that's the thing. Uh, the whole idea is to create your senior staff and and invest and, and cultivate them and then have them create more. So, right, you have to create the first generation of clones and then have them all bought in and stakeholders and they all think they're going to retire there. And like, you know, and the other thing is really interesting is I, Whenever we, you know, if something doesn't work out with the staff that we hire, it's never me that figures it out. It's often people at their level or below them that will turn them in. You know, like, oh, you know, uh, Susie, I don't know. Just want to let you know she's always on her cell phone. Yeah, you know, uh, and, you know, um, doesn't answer her emails. That, and, and this doesn't come often from management, which is interesting is the people who don't like it are are people who are at that level because they're like, well, I'm all bought in. Why isn't this new person all bought in? Mm-hmm. And they don't like it, right? And so, but then that builds pressure on people to say, hey, uh, if I come in and do a great job, this company is going to reward me because look how they reward these other people. You know, they're going to take care of me. Right, because it can't be a one-way street where they come and give you, give you, give, 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 give. They gotta go and look and say, "Oh, I see people who give, but they're taken care of." Right? You know, I I want you know people say, "Hey, I leave anywhere else, I'm going to take a pay cut." Right? So, I think it's it's got to be you can't just be a taker. 
you, you know, I like one of the things I always say is my job really in the morning, my real job is to improve the lives of everyone that works for us. I mean, that's really my job. I mean, because there's, I'm not doing the IT, I'm not doing the social media. So what am I doing? Right? I'm not taking calls from the clients necessarily. So what am I doing? My job is to improve the lives of everyone in our organization, professionally, financially, every way. You're responsible for the well-being, their um, their cognitive well-being, their spiritual well-being, their social, every aspect. And I guess that's the leader's greatest challenge. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I did early on is uh, no matter who you are in the organization, I get blind copied, uh, and they know it, I get copied on all of their emails, all, incoming and outgoing. And I will peruse through all of them, looking for signs of people needing help. You know, so I'll see an email. I'm like, you know what? Let me call Susie. Hey, Susie, I saw your email to that vendor. I see he's giving you a hard time uh, on this and this. Have we? You know, can I give you some feedback on how to approach it? And they're so happy. Like, oh, wow. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. So this idea that you've got their back, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. And so just say, hey, uh, you know, someone's looking out for me or some, you know, even if someone's saying, hey, uh, I kind of felt unappreciated from this other staff member. So, you know, I'll call that staff member or and both of them and say, hey, where was the miscommunication there? How can we make it better? So that's really, you know, that should be the job of any leader to, you know, how can they make the lives of the people that work in their organization better? And sometimes personally, too, if they're going through a tough time at home, hey, do you need some time off? What can we do? You need a little advance to kind of get you through a tough time. Uh, you know, we could work that out, whatever. And uh, sometimes, you know, we've we've gotten people apartments, you know, in a pinch, you know, something's going on. Uh, you know, what if you're there for them and and thinking about them, uh, I think they then realize, oh, this organization has my back. And what happens off-field? really impacts what happens on field. So the fact that you're looking after them personally is really going to show up and help you guys from a business standpoint. Right. And you can't really do it just for that because sometimes we don't get anything back. But yeah, I think that the message, of course, is that we're a team, we're a family, and we're in it to win. And they come to me often and say, hey, did you know, you know, I got this phone call and one of our competitors is doing this. Have we thought about doing the same thing? Or, you know, so... You know, they will also keep their ears to the ground and say, hey, or I just heard that there's a potential client that could use our services. You know, my brother works for this company that could could use our services. And, you know, uh, would it be okay if I put a feeler out to them? So it it just, it, it kind of eventually is all synchronous. Mm, 100%. And look, I sense that you're very driven. Uh, you care about others, you want to build culture, you're ambitious. What's next? What's on the trajectory for you? If you look over to that horizon, where where are you headed? What are you excited about from a professional standpoint? Uh, You know, launching e-national testing was our first dip in the water to kind of get a nationwide footprint. So I really like to see, you know, and we did it using our own technology, you know, literally everything on that is we wrote the software, we wrote the platform. Uh, so I, we heavily, you know, I know for many years, every penny we made, we reinvested in technology. Um, and so I think really becoming a force nationally 
is really the next step. So we want to really invest and try to grow that and see if we can make a, a real difference in healthcare in the United States and uh, and and with technology and innovation. It's incredible. I look forward to seeing it unfold. And I just want to be respectful and mindful of your time. So we've got one last question for you. And if we were to go out many, many years into mm-hmm. the future, it's your last day here on earth. You know it's your last day. Mm-hmm. And a very young person in your life, somebody very young mm-hmm. comes up, they're under the age of 10, and they say, Jonathan, what can I do to lead mm-hmm. my life on purpose? What would you say mm-hmm. to them? You know, uh, uh, I don't know if this word means anything. Uh, you know, I always tell people just be a mensch. I don't know if that's a Yiddish term, which if you know what that means, but a mensch is like, it's the, I don't know why I use that word because it kind of encapsulates everything. Just just be a good human being, you know, like really, you know, always do the right thing. Be a good human being. Be upstanding. You know, uh, your word is everything. Make sure no one ever says he said one thing meant another thing. Uh, and, and just be a solid person. You know, be a good human being. Think about others. Think about how you can help others and not focus on yourself. At 10, of course, you think the whole world revolves around you. So I'm not sure a 10-year-old would digest that because uh, I, I have a 10-year-old and I love him to death. But uh, but yeah, yeah, but I think as you grow older, you got it, you know, this whole idea that the universe doesn't revolve around me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, just how can I make an impact? How can I improve the lives of others? But even your family, you know, you have, you know, if you're working 150 hours a week, you know, you're not there for your family. So, you know, balance uh, and and view them as a priority uh, and just being a mensch, you know, just be a good person. Incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And for the listener that's listening right now, my challenge to you is ask yourself, what can I do today to be more of a mensch? Really amazing, Dr. Jonathan. I really, I really appreciate it. And <laughs> I look forward to connecting again. I don't think this will be the last time we connect. So thank you so much for making the time and creating this space. Yeah, what an honor. Thank you so much for having me. I, and thank you for making it so easy. I appreciate it. Now, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in today and investing in your own personal leadership. Please hit that subscribe button and I'd love if you'd leave me a rating and review. I've got some amazing guests lined up for you in the coming weeks. And leaders, it's that time to get out there and lead your life on purpose.